0: Have you tried peanut with your baby yet? So intact nuts and thick globs of nut butters are choking hazard for babies, so We can't do that, but we do need to get peanut protein into your baby early and often to help lower the risk of peanut allergy down the road. So my favorite way to do peanut for baby lead weaning is using the Puffworks Baby Peanut Puffs. Now, these are not those little starchy puffs that earlier eaters can't pick up, the ones you see at the grocery store in the container that oftentimes contain added sugar, sodium, and refined grains. No, the Puffworks Baby Peanut Puffs have no added sugar. They're about the size of your adult pinky finger, which is the perfect length for baby lead weaning so i have students and parents always asking about like different puffs i saw one today that a mom asked me about it had three different allergens in it which makes no sense because you can't observe for a reaction if your baby is trying three new allergenic foods at once how do you know which of the ingredients is causing the reaction the only potential allergenic ingredient in the puffworks baby peanut puffs is peanut you can get 15 percent off of puffworks baby peanut puffs if you use my affiliate discount code BabyLed. so head to puffworks.com and enter that code baby lead led at checkout and good luck to you guys trying peanut
1: the manuals indicated you weren't supposed to feed your babies fruits and vegetables until after two years of age there were real fears of diarrhea and dehydration it was not
0: Well, hey, guys, and welcome back. Do you ever take a look at all the crazy baby food items that are for sale at the store today and wonder, like, how did these get here? I mean, what did people feed their babies before the advent of commercial baby foods? Well, as a new mom who also happened to be a food historian, my guest today, Amy Bentley, wondered exactly the same thing. Amy is a professor in the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies at New York University. And she's the author of one of my favorite books. It's called Inventing Baby Food Taste, Health, and the Industrialization of the American Diet. Now, Amy writes and researches and speaks about the social, historical, and cultural contexts of food. And she has a particular interest in baby food. So her book, Inventing Baby Food, is one of those books I've just read it over and over again. And I always find something new and shocking. Like how at one point in the 1950s, for example, the commonly accepted age for introducing baby food was five to six weeks of age. Just think about that. That was less than 100 years ago. And then there was actually even some doctors around that time endorsing the introduction of solid foods within 24 hours of birth. So Amy's researched all of the history of baby food and how industrialization of the food supply plus shifting child-rearing philosophies have all shaped so many of the contexts about how we think about starting solid foods with our babies today. So with no further ado, I wanna introduce you guys to Amy Bentley, PhD, author of Inventing Baby Food, and we're gonna be talking about what did babies eat before baby food was invented.
1: Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to speak with you again. It's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. All right,
0: can you tell us a little bit about what you do? What made you become interested in the social, historical, and cultural aspects of food, and in particular, baby food?
1: Oh, wow. Well, I was a graduate student uh, in the late 80s looking around for a dissertation topic, and I was interested in World War II as a period and women's experiences. And I remembered my mother's stories as a child. She lived in Oakland, California, and her mom had grown up on a farm, so she actually knew how to grow vegetables in their victory garden, unlike their neighbors. And I just remembered my mother's stories about victory gardens and capturing fat in a can on the back of the stove to save, to donate for explosives, things like that. And I I asked the archivist, I said, do you have anything on Victory Gardens? And he, he said, oh, well, let me go back and look and went back and pretty soon came shuffling out with a dolly cart full of boxes and boxes of materials. He said, yeah, there's a lot here and I don't think anyone's looked at it. And I was like, yeah, that's like a historian's dream to find documents that haven't been uncovered or evaluated. And and so my dissertation turned out to be a a history of World War II food rationing with a focus on women's experiences. And then when I was looking around for a topic for my second book, I uh, had a baby and that baby, you know, turned five months, four months, whatever. And I was in the grocery store looking at the aisles and aisles of baby food products. And I thought, wow, there's just, there's so much here and there's baby bottles that have the Pepsi logo on them. And wow, this little jar of baby applesauce is 60 cents or whatever. And then, wow, there's a can in the other aisle that's cheaper than this. And it's the same thing. Anyway, I, I thought, well, what did people feed their babies before there was baby food? And then I thought, well, well, I can figure that out. I'm a food historian. So the project just unfolded from there and became a really you know interesting journey. And I had two babies more. So you know, three babies later, I had a book as well. Okay, your book is one of
0: my all-time favorite books, you guys, it's called Inventing Baby Food, Taste, Health, and the Industrialization of the American Diet. I highly recommend it if you're feeling like pressure to go buy all these kind of wacky, I like to call them fake foods. Like you walk down that aisle at Target and like a lot of moms, like they registered at Target and then they went and bought a lot of like formula or breastfeeding supplies at Target. So like the natural progression is like, well, when my baby turns six months, I'm just gonna go to the baby food aisle. And literally, like, there's no food in that aisle. Like, tell us a little bit about what the current landscape is with regard to baby food, and then maybe juxtapose that to, like, like, what did we do 100 years ago when there wasn't that wacko aisle at Target?
1: Right. The fun part of the project is to look at what was going on with infant food feeding practices and recommendations now. Of course, it was a little bit earlier in my case. Compare that to when I was a baby in the 1960s when I, and I interviewed my mom about that And then comparing it to the early 20th century, where baby food really got its start in the 1920s. I mean, let me go back. Let me start in the beginning and then move forward, if you don't mind. So prior to the 1920s, there was this thing called food for infants, but it wasn't its own category. It was a larger category of soft foods for infants, the elderly, and sick people. And you would have 19th century cooking and home manuals with recipes for um, wheat gruel, you know, like uh, cream of wheat or beef broth or scraped beef. And beef and wheat were seen as the strength producing foods that were important if you were sick, if you were old and you didn't have teeth and you needed soft foods, or sometimes if you are babies, but you uh, really didn't feed babies solid foods until um, nine to 12 months of age. So definitely late compared to how what the recommendations are now, but extremely late, as we'll see in the, the mid-20th century. Moreover, you the manuals indicated you weren't supposed to feed your babies fruits and vegetables until after two years of age, and definitely after the summer. There were real fears of diarrhea and dehydration. There were fears of cholera and dysentery, and it was not really known where those diseases came from. And um, it was thought that maybe there was something... In fruits and vegetables, of course, they have a laxative effect and it would cause, you know, diarrhea or whatever. But it, it was all mixed up with what is a disease, what is bacteria, you know, before this was all worked out. So, and fruits and vegetables, moreover, were didn't seem to have a lot of value, food value in them. It was wheat and beef, those were the big strength-producing foods. And vegetables were like nice, but maybe not necessary, and especially not for babies. But that all changes in the 19 teens when vitamins are discovered. And then fruits and vegetables have this tremendous food value importance that they had not had before. And all of a sudden, people began to, not all of a sudden, but people began to reevaluate fruits and vegetables for adults, but then also for infants. Well, maybe these are important to feed infants at earlier ages. So that happens at the same time the the food supply is industrializing. You're getting canning, manufacturing, mass production of foods, including canned fruits and vegetables. The Gerbers in Michigan have a canning facility for fruits and vegetables. And there's a folklore story that Dorothy Gerber, the mother, is working, trying to prepare fruits and vegetables, puree them for her child, because now it's thought, well, give your children fruits and vegetables, but puree them about, they should be about seven or eight months of age. And she's frustrated. And she tells her husband, well, you've got a canning facility. Why don't you do this in your canning facility? And then I don't have to do it. I think it's kind of folklore, but it could be true.
0: Sounds like a marketer had some influence (laughs) in the story. You know what I mean?
1: I agree. It's not actually the first. The first uh, commercial baby food is produced in Rochester, uh, New York, by another guy. But um, so baby food begins to be manufactured in the late 1920s and 30s. And then also at the same time, you have the perfect storm of the medicalization of childbirth and the development of specializations called pediatrics. OBGYN, you know, uh, where specialists are claiming control over infant feeding and um, childbirth. You're also getting the rise of advertising. So, advertising is fueling product development. So, Gerber, which is creating baby food, is advertising in nutrition journals, in medical journals, L- ladies' home journal, other women's magazines. And then it's a popular, it, it's both pushed by the industry but it's also very popular for parents for mothers they're looking for a little bit of relief in the kitchen and there's you know huge emphasis on cleanliness and sterility and you have to produce it a certain way so it feels like an extra chore so it's popular for women it's pushed by doctor you know also promoted by doctors grocery stores start to develop displays and sections and eventually aisles you know, co- coincides with the baby boom, post-war baby boom period. And then it just, in a matter of really like 20 years, 25 years, one generation becomes a rite of passage. And so by mid-century, most American children are fed baby food about six to eight weeks um, after birth. And most of those babies are consuming Gerber baby food. So it is huge lightning fast in, in relative terms. Um, transformation of infant food. Of course, parallel to that is emerging um, infant formula. That is also becoming more important.
0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and works with your lifestyle as a parent or caregiver. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on the journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. And getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially because we're always growing and changing. And I think this is particularly true for parents. I know firsthand how you can feel torn between your old, baby-free, carefree self and this new, very challenging role of parenting a small person. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding, as well as talking through things that can help you know what you want or why you react the way you do. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month today. And I know people are going to think you just made a mistake when you said six to eight weeks. So, like, you could just clarify that that was actually like the recommendation at one point, right? Was six weeks after birth to start solid foods?
1: Yeah, six to eight weeks, and in fact, some doctors are advocating like twenty-four hours after birth. So, um, as the volume, as the the amount of material of baby food increases, the average age of consumption, first consumption of solid food, starts to go down. So it goes from about a year after birth down to nine months, six to seven months. And then by the 1950s and 60s, the average age is six to eight weeks after birth. And some doctors have manuals prescribing 24 hours after birth. So there's no studies that show it's not okay. And so if it's a little as good, a lot is better sort of mentality, well, solid food is good. It's strength producing. It helps you fall asleep. It's we want our child to be strong and healthy. And if that family is feeding their child baby food that early, well, then, you know, we can too. And, it, and so doctors are a little worried about it, but parents are really driving it. And a culture of abundance, of um, a post-war American ethos where America is the superpower and we feed our children. We use science. We use technology. We know what's best through those mechanisms and we don't breastfeed our babies like those people in National Geographic. You know, we're civilized. So it's all wrapped up in these cultural ideas of civilization, modernity, belief in science and technology. And so it's this perfect storm of all those, you know, cultural, scientific ideas about wellness and health wrapped up in one. So there aren't studies that showing feeding infants solid food early. Is not okay, and so that's that's where it sits for a while until the nineteen seventies and eighties when there's a reevaluation of that.
0: And can you talk about where we are now? Because I think people are surprised to hear that. Like, wait a minute, Katie, you're always talking about waiting until six months of age, plus showing the other signs of readiness to feed six to eight weeks of age. Like, how in such a short period of time did it change? And what do we now know about waiting and why it's better?
1: Yeah, well, eventually they start to do studies. There are a few doctors that are going. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That you know. Let's think about this. The American Medical Association issues some, you know, recommendations, American Pediatric Association. And finally, some, you know, studies are showing, okay, well, maybe an infant's GI system isn't really ready for food until later. Maybe this can increase later, later, like obesity and health issues. If we're feeding infants all of this food and they can't turn their head to refuse it or, you know... um, maybe there's more in breast milk than we thought i mean I, for a long time it was like feeling like breast milk was deficient it was a deficient fluid that was not good enough for kids and if we fed them food and formula it would be better and so those ideas are changing with the counterculture the late 20th century you know 1970s and 80s reevaluation of science reevaluation of belief in experts and a reassertion of motherhood and then, you know, naturalization of like, well, I'm the mother I know better. So kind of reclaiming that through the women's movement and other, you know, La Leche League and other organizations, just a cultural ethos that changes in the late 20th century that reclaims some of that space and therefore pushes back. You get a consumer movement, Ralph Nader, et cetera, consumer movement pushing back against the corporations that saying... Wait! All this food has all look at it's got salt, it's got sugar, it's got additives. What's in it? So the Senate holds hearings, and then uh, slowly the age push of recommended introducing solids pushes back to okay. Then it's like two to three months of age, and then it's four to six months, and now we've sort of settled around six. You know, sometimes they're saying don't wait too long because. You know, now we, we know other things.
0: Certainly the increased risk of, you know, food aversion, picky eating the later you wait, but certainly increased risk of choking and a number of other, you know, food allergies and relationships Some data even indicating overweight and obesity with early start. So for quite some time now, we've been kind of set at the six month mark, though, in the context of time, would you say?
1: I would say that. Yeah.
0: And so then if we're looking at just even the last decade, one thing I love about your book was when you published it was really when pouches were starting to take off. Could you speak to how pouches have really revolutionized the baby food industry? I interviewed my own mom for the podcast recently. She was talking about remembering baby food jars. And we were reminiscing about when like there used to be like baby food dessert. Like I remember like seeing like blueberry cobbler, like that was a thing. We laugh at it now, but like it's almost as asinine what's in pouches. (laughs) Sorry, that's my opinion. That's not your opinion. No,
1: I agree. Um, So baby food originally was produced in tin cans. That's how it came. That was how a lot of most processed food came. But eventually, pretty quickly switched to jars because it was important for women to see through those jars and to look at the contents. It's partly why you had to have so many emulsifiers and additives because you didn't want the contents to separate and you wanted nice, bright color. So jars became the norm, I would say, definitely by the 50s, 40s, 50s. And those little jars became iconic because you could use them and in arts and crafts projects you could use them in in shop to hold chops to hold nails and they were really the standard until um, early 21st century when the pouch came in as a new technology. In some ways it makes total sense because there's other foods that are packaged in pouches. You know, we had StarKist tuna in pouches. We've got those Go Gurt's in pouches. The gel packs that uh, athletes are using. And so, you know, to use that technology to create pouches on one hand makes sense and also extends these values that we as Americans prize, which is mobility and convenience. So we can just grab a couple of pouches, stick them in the bag, go out to the park, go to this, do run errands, open up the pouch, hang it, head it to the kit, right? So it does what we already want baby food to do and value, of course. The downside <laughs> is it further individualizes food and feeding. So, you know, even just to unscrew a jar and and take a spoon out and feed an infant with a spoon or hands or whatever, you know, that is an interactive exercise. And so there's stuff going on, there's communication, there's language. You're teaching children about food rules at a say if it were a meal with other people. But if you're just taking a pouch and handing it to the kid in the stroller, or, you know, just th- then that's a totally individualized, atomized way of eating. And you're missing a lot of socialization that goes on. I mean, that's just one thing. Pediatric dentists aren't so crazy about them because they can just like, you know, get goo on your teeth. Oh, and
0: speech language pathologists hate them because it's not a required developmental milestone for your baby to learn how to suck out of a pouch. I mean, dietitian myself, you don't like them from a nutrition standpoint, it's watered down applesauce or versions of foods that babies could be eating. And from a, you know, three to $4 a pouch in some cases, like, can we talk about the baby food companies are not making these for you because they're convenient. They're making a killing on what's essentially apple and pear puree.
1: Yeah. Right. That's The primary the flavor is sweet. You know, the, the number one ingredients, usually apple or pear puree. But I have to say, I have a little sympathy for some of these products because they're interesting and they're fun. They're fun to try. I mean, on one hand, we shouldn't allow our parenting or our life to be driven by consumption and consuming. However, we live in a totally consumerized world. We get cues 24-7. So much of our life in every realm is about this idea of consumption and consuming. I'm not saying it's a great idea, but I'm just saying, like in that realm of consumption, trying new products is interesting and stimulating, you know, like it's it's different. And so if there's a new thing that comes on the market, trying it, I mean, I I understand that impulse.
0: It's novel for sure. But now it's almost just like, that's the norm. Like it's not novel anymore. Parents just think they need to have pouches. Yeah.
1: And there is some pushback. And I've noticed some baby food companies now, like turning away from the pouch. You know, I I watched my niece feed her baby with a pouch. It was interesting. She took the pouch and then she- Oh my God, if you
0: were my aunt, I would be so, so (laughs) intimidated to feed my baby in front of you.
1: I was just slyly watching. I don't even know if she knew I wrote this book, frankly, I'm not sure, but she was squeezing the food from the pouch onto a spoon and then feeding the baby. So,
0: and that's what we do in baby led weaning. Like you can squeeze it into a bowl and put it on a preloaded spoon and allow the baby, like take no issue with purees. It's an important texture for babies to learn how to master. It's just not the only texture they can eat. And I think some parents think buying three or four pouches is nutritionally complete for an eight or nine month old. And it certainly is not. So
1: then they still have to go and make real food on top of it. So totally. I, I definitely am in agreement. It's another technology and it has problems. Absolutely. Oh,
0: I'm always curious. Are you ever going to write a second edition of your book?
1: <laughs> I mean, I would if
0: someone were interested. I- I'm i interested. <laughs> the largest baby-led weaning community is interested. Like your book is amazing. You guys, if you haven't read it, Inventing Baby Food, I'll link to it on the show notes here at blwpodcast.com. But such an interesting read. Just If you're at all even remotely interested in food, food history, even if you're not, it's, I know like my mom has read it and she's like, gosh, I forgot about this and that. The history of the marketing, the pictures in it are amazing. My favorite is the chart that shows what you were explaining a little bit earlier is like the medical establishment encouraged solid foods for babies as young as six weeks old and how that's changed. Like it's a wonderful book, great visuals. I highly recommend it, but I'd love to see an updated version of it.
1: Oh, that would be great. Well, I think what I want people who read it and women, but also, every, you know, men as well to come. Rita, and to take away is that a couple of things. One, look at how practice and advice shifted over the, the time period. You know, and we should trust the advice that we have and trust the science, but also recognize that we're in a cultural moment and we are affected by that cultural moment and some things may change later. So to note, note how ideas about wellness and health change over time and how that is affected by consumerism and byproducts but also this idea of what remains the same is the anxiety surrounding like being a good mother like what does it mean to be a good mother and what what should i feed my baby and and that is a constant women have always w- worried about that and just the answer has been different things however i also think you know i was a child of the baby of the early 60s i was fed infant formula i was uh, fed gerber baby food and you lived to talk about it amy <laughs> exactly i i was loved i had warm clothes and a house and i was you know well well cared for and i turned out all right so some of that anxiety should just be allayed by like you do the best you can you provide those basics you provide a ton of love and don't make food too big of a deal like just like the anxiety that a parent feels like watching a child eat on a plate is the worst thing you can do to a child because the child will absorb those feelings And it will make food a fraught, anxious exchange. So the more you can just relax about it, enjoy it, make food a family communal event, talk about taste and flavor with children, be excited about different kinds of foods, the better off I think that children will be
0: my phone is bursting at the seams with photos of our kids and over the years i've tried all sorts of different ways to store and share them with family members so for a while i would just text out pictures to the grandparents and then we tried a shared photo album but some people were using google photos and others preferred facebook messenger for pictures and the more kids we had the messier it got then i stumbled across the family album app The family album app was created to give parents a secure and easy way to share photos and videos with loved ones. It's a totally secure personal haven for your family's memories. I love that there's no third-party ads, no unwanted eyes, and it's totally free. No more scrolling through endless feeds or searching folders to find the picture of the kid that you need right now. Another cool feature about the family album app is you can order eight free photo prints every month to be delivered to your home. Which, if you think about how quickly your baby is changing, it's really nice to have some tangible pictures to hold onto or share to document the last month of your baby's life. If you're looking to level up your photo sharing and organization game with a secure, one-stop, easy-to-use photo organization app, head over to the App Store, search Family Album, download the Family Album app, and start creating a legacy of love one photo at a time. And something that you talk about, which is the how pouches individualize food and feeding and versus that communal aspect of learning how to eat with your family at the table that we're missing that socialization piece. I think right now is a very interesting time where we're seeing the exact same thing happen with the introduction of allergenic foods is that there's all of these supplement companies now involved making these powders and these stick packs and these mix-ins and preying on parents' fears for the introduction of real food. And again, I'm totally biased as a registered dietitian whose entire life work is teaching parents how to feed their babies food. But I see parents like if that becomes the norm or they see that marketed very heavily to them in a very short period of time, so many parents have just even begun to doubt their baby's ability to eat, you know, safely prepared peanuts or shellfish or shrimp. And and just a few years ago, those products weren't even around. I feel like like the next volume of the book should be about this medicalization of allergenic food introduction, because it's certainly I mean, it, it started in 2017, but it is taking off through the roof right now.
1: That is such an interesting idea. I really like that idea because it's basically, it's like a pill. It's like medicine, like a teaspoon of this, a tiny gram of that, like instead of thinking of it. And very
0: arbitrarily chosen, certainly not steep. I mean, all the research that shows that introducing solid foods early helps prevent food allergy. Those studies were done on children who ate food, not supplements and powders that aren't even real food. I mean, your baby, they can eat these foods and yet it's crazy how much marketing goes into convincing parents that they can't. And in a short period of time, There's a whole generation of parents like, gosh, I mean, some of these programs are $200 a month. That's incredible. For three allergens. Like, you want to know how much an egg, a peanut, and a little bit of dairy costs? Like, you can do this for significantly cheaper. But I mean, again, a lot of it is about marketing. And that's what I think is important about your book is it is important to have this discussion that a lot of this is about marketing. Again, I'm always trying to market food to parents, but you're sometimes up against, you know, really large multinational companies. I mean, Gerber is... Owned by Nestle. It's the largest food company in the world. Like, let's get real about what's really at stake here is you know, four dollars for a pouch, it's insane.
1: Yeah, the pouches feel um, I mean, they haven't supplanted the jars, have have they? Or are they oh God,
0: have you been? I can't, you can't even find a jar of baby food anymore.
1: Gosh, I haven't checked lately. So. Oh, every time
0: I go to Target, I think of you. I'm like, should I send her this picture? <laughs> the one that kills me, shelf stable yogurt. Like, how gross is that, you guys? If it were actually yogurt with live active cultures, it would need to be refrigerated. And yet first ingredient sugar, like it's almost laughable. And I was actually, we we're actually looking at a lot of the ingredients in these allergenic products. The first ingredient for their cookies is sugar. Like, but the purpose is to introduce allergenic ingredients. Like you could just feed your baby that real food without the sugar. Like to me, it seems very obvious, but I understand where the confusion comes because it looks more fun or you feel like you have to do it. And you make such good points about like, okay, if I'm a good mom, I have to be a good consumer. I got to try these things. And should I be buying this for my baby or signing up for this or that? And it just supplants and displaces the introduction of important, wholesome, real foods for families is how I feel about it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and it's interesting, there was a backlash against baby food in the 1970s in that DIY, you know, back to basics, kind of uh, or, or introduction of organics movement. And so women started like, well, I'm just going to make my own baby food. And it was a thing and it was enough to upset the baby food companies that that they had to adapt and had to create organic versions, et cetera. You know, then we saw another version of that in the early 21st century. Again, like another backlash, like, we're not going to buy this food, which is terrific. But then what happens is that you have those like $400 Breville baby food maker.
0: Oh my God. I die when those companies approach me. They're like, will you promote this? I'm like, well, if you have a pan and it has a lid and you have water how does your $400 baby food maker differ? like, oh, it doesn't. Like, okay.
1: It's so sad. They can't leave stuff alone. And we clearly have way too much money if there's a, there are people purchasing those things. There's people with way too much money. But my concern
0: is, is like people who don't have enough money. Like I remember seeing those being like, what is this doing that my pot or pan's not doing? And like, like no, it just does what a pot or a pan does. It's like, so let's just call it what it is. It's a $400 pot.
1: Yeah, it just preys on people's insecurities. And um, at the same time, it's, fun and interesting. And there's nothing different with, uh, to a pan and some water basically. Yeah.
0: One thing that's interesting about baby led weaning is, it is one of the few things that appeals to a second time parent. Like, you know, that first parent, they're going to register for everything and like buy all the baby stuff. And then you have a second kid and you're like, I don't need any of that. But if you have a picky toddler, oftentimes those parents are kind of on the hunt for, okay, what can I do to help prevent picky eating in this second baby? They stumble upon, Oh, babies can learn how to eat real food from their first bites. And then I don't have to do all this short order cooking stuff. So I think there is some value for, you know, the the kind of anti-consumerism movement in that, like, how can we clear out all of this nonsense and just go back to basics, which I always you know, ask parents in the context of your research, like, what did cave mom feed her baby when there wasn't an aisle full of pouches and shelf-stable yogurt for babies at Target?
1: They fed them their foods. <laughs> Modified versions of what the real
0: family. Eats. So it's like so funny to spend all the time convincing parents that babies can eat real food. And I mean, we were talking about, you know, how, how research changes. I always say as a dietitian, like it's just job security, like one week butter's bad and then butter's good. And people like, I don't know. It's like, yeah, like it just keeps me in a job. And I'm saying it a little bit of tongue in cheek, but like guidelines really do change. And I know for parents, especially for allergenic food introduction, you know, when I was learning and studying nutrition 20 years ago in dietitian school, we said, you know, you don't introduce the egg white till baby's one. You don't know how many parents can be like, oh, my pediatrician is telling me not to do eggs till one. Like that's literally 20 year old data. It has been obsolete for 20 years. And yet we're still hearing it. So some of this stuff, you know, it doesn't change across the board. I think there is still always, you know, a little bit of room for um, being up on what's happening in research and science.
1: Definitely. Definitely. Right. And if you wait, they used to say wait three weeks before introducing a second food or something. Like if you waited in between foods, your baby would eat like five foods. Exactly. (laughs) And I I teach a hundred
0: first foods approach. My program teaches babies how to eat a hundred foods before they turn one. And we know like parents, what about three to five days between foods? It's like, gosh, if I could do anything to get doctors to stop saying that. Because if an allergic reaction is going to occur, it happens within minutes or up to two hours following the ingestion of that food, not five days later. And yet we're slowing down unnecessarily introduction of foods, which does not lend to the diet diversity that we know babies need in order to become independent eaters and prevent picky eating. So,
1: Speaking of that, I I want to say something that my book is not anti-baby food, anti-commercial baby food. I think it does have a place, especially in families who aren't regularly cooking or eating a wide variety of fruits and vegetables. And when we know only one in 10 Americans are eating a minimum number of fruits and vegetables, so three to five per day. One in 10, that's pretty sad and abysmal. And most of those vegetables are potatoes or tomatoes in the form of ketchup, french fries, potato chips, pasta sauce. So they're not even necessarily real vegetables. So in in homes where there's not traditions of strong, you know, eating a wide variety of fruits and vegetables, those little jars of baby food are actually protective. You know, those studies that show that babies, you know, at six months of age are eating a white, you know, a green vegetable and a red vegetable. And then once they stop eating baby food, their number of vegetables drops and they are moving, some of them are moving on to French fries and happy meals. So I do always want to point out that like that that convenience and that ubiquitousness of baby food has a place for certain families where it makes sense. You know, I don't want to make anyone feel guilty, anyone feeling they're not enough of a parent if they're not making their all their own baby food, you know, everybody that's an individual choice. And you want your baby to eat the healthiest possible under the conditions that you can, you know, provide. So I, I do, I feel like it's important to point that out.
0: Certainly, and I couldn't agree more that there is a place for it. Like you're on a road trip, or you're on an airplane and you can't have a full-blown baby-led weaning meal. But is it the only food that babies should be eating? No. Does the marketing of these products imply that they're nutritionally complete if you combine them with stage two and three and four and all this arbitrary marketing jargon? Like there certainly is some trickery involved in it. And I think your book does a good job of pointing out just how much marketing is involved in these products. And once you're aware of it, sometimes I'm like, I know we were talking about this with the girls I work with. They were saying they hate abandoned cart emails. I'm like, dude, I love abandoned cart emails because I always forget. And they're like, no, it's so mean. They're like tracking you. I'm like, I actually forgot. Like sometimes I like being marketed to. I like sponsored and targeted marketing. But you know, within reason, like some of these products are not necessary. And I think when we talk about like baby food dessert, like can we all agree across the board that no added sugars for babies up until age two is like a good thing that the AAP recommends. But what percent of baby foods have sugar as the first ingredient and there are grams of added sugar. If the grams of added sugar line is not zero, you should not buy it for your baby is a pretty good rule of thumb. And it rules out most of the foods that are marketed to parents to feed to their babies. You mentioned a certain brand of yogurt, like baby yogurts have added sugar in them, but babies can eat real yogurt that doesn't have sugar in it. Like that's where I kind of draw the line.
1: Definitely. Right, Those and then those makeup products like toddler milks, you know, that are chocolate flavored, like just those definitely seem evil. (laughs) I
0: do a lot of speaking for WIC and that's one of the most requested presentations that I do is about toddler milks because across the board, we can all agree that toddler milks are asinine. Like, yeah. Okay. You mentioned ketchup as a vegetable. And I always think of you when I hear about ketchup as a vegetable, tell us about your work, helping us to learn about ketchup as a vegetable.
1: Oh man. I did a geeky deep dive into the whole, uh, 1981 ketchup as a vegetable debacle, that uh, in the Reagan administration that lived on to infamy and now is like a shorthand phrase for a government gone wrong. Uh, and in the early eras of the, era of the Reagan administration, they worked to dramatically slash all budgets, including USDA and school lunch budgets by about a third. And so very, very quickly, they were forced to come up with new guidelines. And one of the guidelines they came up with was allowing a condiment to count as a vegetable, like relish, pickle relish. They also, this is a long story, allowed like tomato paste to be a vegetable. Now these two became conflated, rightly or wrongly, you could argue, to be this idea that ketchup could count as a condiment, could count as a vegetable in children's school lunch and therefore reduce the amount of money that the government had to spend on lunches. It blew up, Senate hearings, everybody caught onto this phrase, And in a matter of weeks, the government had to roll back and abandon that. But I do this geeky deep dive into those recommendations. I'm linking
0: to the article. It's so good, you guys. At the end of the day, I know you got to go. Is ketchup a vegetable for babies?
1: No, (laughs) no way. It's not a vegetable for adults either.
0: Well, Amy, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I could talk to you all day long. I'm highly advocating for volume two of Inventing Baby Food and then another book where you really teach us what's going on about the allergenic supplement stick pack programs out there.
1: Very good suggestions. I'll think about that. Thank you so much.
0: Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Amy Bentley. I love getting the opportunity to speak with her. She is so knowledgeable about the history of baby food. I don't know. I know some people think history is boring. I am fascinated by history. I'm a firm believer that those who do not study history are doomed to repeat its mistakes. And there have been so many mistakes in the world of infant feeding, and maybe we don't have it all figured out right now, but I for one am glad that we don't start solid foods with babies when they're 6 weeks of old because we know they're really not appropriate then. So, I'm going to link all of the resources that Amy Bentley talked about, including her book which is called Inventing Baby Food. That'll be on the show notes for you for this episode which you can find at blwpodcast.com forward slash 144. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Like a lot of moms out there, I will totally admit I am quite type A. I am a total taskmaster, and one of my weekly work tasks is to review the feedback forms that our new students in my program, which is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro, that they leave for us. So basically this form asks a lot of questions about you and your baby and your baby's feeding and medical history, any concerns that you might have or fears about starting solid foods. And all of this data helps me when I'm answering parent questions inside of our weekly live office hours so I can then tailor my response to your particular baby and situation, right? Because it's not a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to what your baby's eating, right? Because maybe your baby has an egg allergy or another mom in the program. She might really be struggling with how to make meat safe because she doesn't like to cook. So this week on the forum, there's a new mom named Janine, and she wrote, and this is her quote, I researched a lot on the internet, and I have a lot of books. I saw a lot of other baby-led weaning programs, but in the end, this is the one that I realized is what I'm really looking for as a new mom. I love that Katie's program has a community and that there are videos for everything you need to know and how to make the foods. And what I love the most is that there's already a meal plan ready. And this just like stopped my heart because this is exactly why I created the Baby Lead Weaning with Katie Ferraro program. I wanted to literally put everything that you need to know about starting solid food safely in one place with a super easy-to-follow 20 full-weeks meal plan. Okay. There's 20 weeks because it's five foods a week. I want your baby to get to those hundred new foods before they turn one. Cause I also know you have a lot going on as a new mom and hunting and pecking all over the internet to try to figure out what am I going to feed this baby? That is not the solution. So if you want to check out the baby led weaning with Katie Ferraro program, I would be honored to work with you and your baby. You can head to babyledweaning.co to get started. And hopefully I'll be reading your feedback soon too.